you got this really good radio. It's it's like very obvious why you're doing the job you're doing now. I don't know about that. I will never be on <laughs> an athletic podcast. That's my goal. I think your goal should be to to be on the athletic podcast. Well, now you've said that on the record, yeah. so we get to play this back uh, at some point in the <laughs> when future you're when you're on. Big star. Wonderful. Welcome to this special quick take episode of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early stage venture fund in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am a general partner at Wave Capital, an early stage venture firm focused on marketplaces based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. Today, we are doing a quick take on the purchase of Caviar by DoorDash from Square. And we have an expert with us today to understand what is going on, what is this company, what is going on in this space right now. David, help introduce our guest, please. Our very special guest today is Nick Adler, here in the studio, live in San Francisco with us. And Nick is honestly just about the very best person in the entire world to have this conversation with for a number of reasons. First, he was the year ahead of me in business school at uh, Stanford Business School, 2013, classmates with Tony Hsu, co-founder and CEO of DoorDash. They're present to observe the very beginnings of that business. And then after GSB, you, would, uh, you worked at Bain before GSB, right? Bain before and, and after. Then, and then briefly after, and then you went and joined caviar and you were head of local markets at caviar for yep. several years that's right great the most important qualification for nick here is that his spouse most important qualification to come on acquired <laughs> is that his spouse is the very best former m&a professional in the entire business my partner at wave sarah adler that is right. You get to work with my better half. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, acquired LP guest. I mean, I'm gazing upon a, a chair that she has uh, has sat in and, and had a great episode with us on, you know, demystifying corp dev, I think was the title. Yeah. We, we have a, a contest at home. So whoever gets the most listeners to their episode <laughs> uh, gets a dinner from the other one. So I hope this episode does well. Maybe, maybe a caviar or a DoorDash dinner. Yeah, either. Maybe. It's the same thing now. Nick, actually, you just recently, before this transaction was announced, you just left Caviar and are now also very relevant to podcasting, the GM of audio at The Athletic. And you are building up podcasts for local sports uh, from professional through collegiate all across the country, right? Yep, that's right. Um, for those of you who don't know, The Athletic is a media company focused on sports content for diehard fans. Really, what they've built over there is amazing. I'm really excited to have to have joined recently. Um, started focused on print, but are uh, expanding rapidly into audio and video as well. And they've just uh, assembled some of the best sports journalists in the world, and it's uh, it's been really fun so far. I'm on week two <laughs> of of my time at the Athletic. Well, it was super cool uh, and super cool to hear from here through Sarah your uh, your journey of joining there. So the Athletic is awesome. Go check out theathletic.com/podcasts. And you can listen to all these great shows. All right, David, we have one exciting announcement before we dive in. We are in the running to do an acquired live show at South by Southwest this year. Now, listeners, here's the important part. 
We need your help to make it happen. The way the panels are picked is through a voting process, and you can toss us an upvote by clicking the link in the show notes or going to acquired.fm slash SXSW. It takes two minutes to do, and I'll tell you up front, they do have a little uh, process to create an account, but it's super quick. We really appreciate you helping us to make this happen. Again, go to acquired.fm slash SXSW, or you can click the link at the top of the show notes. And without further ado, onto the show. So DoorDash and Caviar, I think most of our audience is probably aware of what they are, food delivery platforms. They both launched in 2013, the year you guys graduated from business school. Square ended up acquiring Caviar in 2014, so pretty early the next year, for $90 million. DoorDash, meanwhile, uh, had a number of years of kind of ups and downs through the food delivery wars, uh, you know, competing with Uber Eats, which of course they still do, and Grubhub, Postmates, et cetera, and Caviar uh, within Square. And then early last year in 2018, DoorDash raised kind of one of the first real canonical SoftBank rounds, uh, raised $500 million from the Vision Fund at SoftBank at a $1.4 billion valuation. Fast forward to just a couple months ago in May 2019, and DoorDash is now valued at $12.6 billion. So 12x valuation increase on the private markets. All the while you're at Caviar within Square in the public markets within a public market company. We'll jump in here before we get to the transaction. What did you guys think as you saw these valuations of, um, you know, certainly not only DoorDash, but DoorDash especially rising in the private markets? Yeah, I don't think we paid too much attention to the valuations themselves. I think it was more about the just sheer volume of money they raised and what that meant from sort of uh, competitive dynamics and what that meant for our strategy. So I think we were we were more focused on sort of the the strategy of what we could do that was differentiated in order to compete with someone who had $5 million of dry powder than we were with the valuations, for example. But it's definitely a crazy time. I remember my, my tenure at Caviar was basically from three or so months after they got acquired to two months before they sold. So I was basically at Caviar for almost the entire uh, square tenure. I remember when I first started, like we were sort of thinking about these private competitors and thinking things like, oh, what if one of them raised $100 million? Yeah. I mean, at this point, DoorDash <laughs> had probably raised, what, about $20 million? Something in that ballpark. And so I think we were sort of, when we were thinking about like the space, the numbers we were thinking of, like it just, in the end, we were completely wrong about how much money would flow into the space. It makes sense. It's a, it's a huge, huge market that's growing quite quickly. But I think that's one of the things, if I go back and think about my perspective when I... When I joined Caviar four and a half years ago, that was probably, I wouldn't have guessed how much money would, would flow into space. And I think part of that was SoftBank wasn't really a thing. You wouldn't have guessed that like the next big wars after transportation would have been the food delivery wars, like were of a comparable magnitude. Yeah. And, and I think fundraising was different back then too, right? Like this, it just, I can't remember the exact timing and maybe SoftBank had already written big checks, but at least none that said sort of made it onto my radar. It was a fun adventure to compete and it made for some 
you know, like consequential business decisions that made it fun to come into work every day. Yeah, yeah. Just to fully paint the picture quickly, as we always do on Quick Take episodes, we're not going to do the full acquired history and facts, but just so everybody's on the same page about what happened last week. So last Thursday on August 1st, 2019, uh, Square announced their second quarter earnings. And as part of that, announced the big news that they were selling Caviar to DoorDash for $410 million in cash and stock. And all of the Caviar team, all employees, uh, will be joining DoorDash once the acquisition closes. And DoorDash has always been a Square customer. So DoorDash integrates with Square for restaurants. DoorDash is going to continue to do that as part of the transaction and, and double down and run all of their business with the restaurants through through Square, which I got to imagine is a big win to keep that business. Yeah. And I would say haven't always been a Square customer in that Square just launched Square for restaurants and sort of opened up the platform in the past year or so. So they were one of the launch partners for that open platform that Square is building. Um, but it's a relatively recent uh, partnership. Can you talk about that platform? Because in my head, at least with the branding, like Square for restaurants, like isn't Square always for restaurants? Like it's at the counter when I check out. What What is this product and what do you mean by sort of open platform? I think if you think back to sort of the, what maybe you're thinking about when you say always on the countertop is sort of the original Square point of sale, that iconic white stand, which was adopted by a ton of restaurants. Restaurants has always been a big vertical for Square once they, once they launched that point of sale. That said, it doesn't work well for all types and sort of sophistication of business. So a few years back, I can't remember the exact timing, Square started to provide more um, vertical-specific solutions. So they still have their general point of sale that works well for a wide variety of... Coffee shops and, you know... Retailers and, and, and those sorts of things. But it was lacking certain features that uh, many restaurants required. And so they were having trouble breaking into some restaurants that said, I need table management. I have waiters and waitresses and I need to be able to manage a check that's associated with the table and I need to be able to show the layout of my restaurant. So my waiters... That was like dinerware and companies like that were the legacy players or are the legacy players? Yeah. And there's there's a whole slew. It's a very fragmented industry of, of restaurant point of sales. But Square's restaurant point of sale uh, launched as one of their vertical solutions. And that has sort of those restaurant-specific features like table management, just easier order entry. So they, I think they call it conversational modifiers. So when you tap the screen, it, the buttons are sort of dynamic of what pops up in a way that mimics how someone would tell you their order. Mm, like medium rare. Yeah, or, or like yeah. there's an add button. And then when you press add, all the things that you could add to a sandwich pop-up. Ah, cool. Um, Whereas in the traditional square point of sale, it has all those modifiers and options, but it's just in a list form. And so this was really for sophisticated, busy, big restaurants that um, needed table management, needed sort of the advanced features of check management or things like conversational modifiers. So that launched um, more recently. Again, I can't remember exactly when you can... From the time you joined four and a half years ago at Caviar to now, for restaurants, food delivery is is transformative, right? Has probably completely changed a huge part of their business versus what it looked like even a few short years ago. 
Yeah, I think that that's completely right. And and new restaurants are starting to think about food delivery when they open up new locations or design their layout. Um, things like potentially bigger kitchens, smaller front of house, easier uh, spot for couriers or dashers, as DoorDash calls them, to uh, pick up their food are all things that, that restaurants are considering when they open or when they design their restaurants now, which certainly wasn't the case five years ago. I, I love this trend of like the restaurants need to adapt to technology. I think five years ago it was creating Instagrammable moments in the restaurant. And so like there two good examples are like a restaurant that would have a sort of like place by the front door while you're waiting where you would sort of like take the iconic Instagram shot that has a cool thing behind you and interesting sort of like archway or something like that. And the other one that someone told me recently that's crazy is uh, table lighting has changed. So instead of ambient lighting that's sort of dim, you have this really direct lighting above tables now to make food look more appealing when you take a picture of it to put on Instagram. And I love that like there was this wave of adapting the restaurants for Instagram and now there's this wave of, of adapting those spaces and the operations and front of house and back of house for food delivery. Yeah, and I think all all of that stuff is is great because it's just it's what the diners want, right? I think the one thing I take exception to is I feel like in general the most popular donut shops now are about who has the most instagrammable donut versus who has the most delicious the donut. <laughs> yeah. And I that's one part of the trend that I don't <laughs> enjoy. Let's get right into it. I mean, explain to us how these businesses work, the food delivery platforms. They're three-sided marketplaces with diners, restaurants, and couriers. What is the platform that stitches it all together? I think it works largely how consumers would think, right? In that you place an order from your phone, that order gets communicated to the restaurant, usually via a tablet, increasingly uh there are point of sale integration solutions to communicate that that order to the restaurant the restaurant starts working on that order and an algorithm assigns a courier to that order based on which courier is best situated based on availability how do the restaurants manage especially restaurants that multi-home and are on DoorDash and Caviar and Postmates and Uber Eats like the hilarious pile of yeah how do they manage orders coming in that opens up like a few different interesting angles, right? One is that's part of the pitch for exclusivity, mm-hmm. right? Is if you are a capacity constrained restaurant, you're really popular and you can actually only handle 50 delivery orders a, a night. Why not work with just only one delivery provider, mm-hmm. have only one tablet, have only one payout report, have only one point of contact and that one delivery partner can max out your capacity. Yep. I think that's sort of the case for uh, many of these restaurants that are exclusive with one provider. The flip side of that is, a side note, I also own a restaurant and am a customer <laughs> of, of DoorDash or a partner of DoorDash through that restaurant. So anyone who's in San Jose, California, please go check out Sammy G's Pizza <laughs> on DoorDash. Hey, we said Love you it. could plug one thing on the show. <laughs> that's, that's my bonus plug. I know it's only a quick take episode, so we might not have time, but... <laughs> it is delicious pizza. Restaurant success is a volume game, right? There's a lot of fixed and semi-fixed cost with rent mm-hmm. and labor. And the truth is getting that incremental order when it's not going to cause you to staff more labor... It's just the food cost you're worrying about. The margin on that incremental order 
depending on what type of food you make, can be 60, 70%. Wow. Wow. Whereas your, what's your uh, average gross margin on food at a restaurant when you're incorporating all of the... uh, So I I think like net margin for a restaurant, like it's really hard to get to 10%. Wow. For example, but the... So a marginal food delivery platform order, if you have capacity for it, is extremely profitable for a restaurant. Yeah, and I think that's why people are willing to pay commissions to these delivery partners, right? Because even if you take out, uh, let's say, a 30% commission... If your margin was 60 or 70% and you weren't going to get that order without being on that platform, 30% of that volume is flowing right to your bottom line because you didn't staff more labor, um, because you didn't pay more rent, because your utilities didn't change. And so you're not employing the, well, nobody's employing, but especially you as a restaurant is not employing the courier. Right. The, the courier's expense is, is wrapped up in the fees the diner pays and the commission rate that you pay to the platform is is how they pay that that courier. So if you have excess capacity in your restaurant, getting as many orders as possible can be hugely helpful and and frankly is sort of what's led my restaurant to be able to be profitable, but because we're in a place where we're not like the most popular restaurant in town that never has any excess capacity and there's a line out the door 24-7 and or reservations are three months out. We do work with multiple partners. It is a bit of a pain to manage all those tablets. And so I think, one, consolidation will help a little bit yeah, on that yeah, front. Yeah. And two, when, when you said DoorDash is uh, integrated with with Square for Restaurants, that's part of this solution to get rid of the tablet farm, make it operationally easier for restaurants to handle orders from multiple providers. So Square for Restaurants, what Square wants is for all the food delivery partners to order through them. So they're the singular POS system that the restaurant has to deal with. And then, you know, anybody can sort of bring in that order and and then handle the sort of courier and delivery of that. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. And so the idea is the the integration allows all these any delivery partner that integrates with it to pipe orders directly into the point of sale, provide integrated reporting, sort of get in your normal order flow as if that was entered by one of your staff members in the point of sale. Will Uber Eats ever do that? Uh, that's a good question. They weren't on the list of launch partners with Square. Or Grubhub or seem like Grubhub Seamless. Is that one thing now? Uh, Grubhub yeah, Seamless has been one thing. They emerged a number they, of years yeah, ago, yeah. They've been one thing for a while. I don't know. It's definitely in the best interest of the restaurants to to have one system they use. Uh, Uber Eats and Grubhub have done other points of sale integration. If I were Uber Eats, do I view it as valuable to own that screen experience? Or am I willing to say like, oh, yeah, that's a weird commodity part of my business that I don't want to do anyway. And like, good, then then the restaurants can have the best experience possible. And I can, you know, make the money that I want to make by actually handling the aggregation of demand for orders and then the courier network to deliver those orders. Yeah. And I would argue it would be to their detriment to, to think we're not going to integrate with point of sales and make the restaurant's life easier when everyone else is going to. Yeah. I think that's going to be a hard position to maintain in the long term. And so I think they would be smart to focus on the demand aggregation and the logistics side of the network and 
the restaurant sales side of the network, but I don't think you need to be the the operational tool for the restaurant to succeed in this space. You've alluded to this, but I I, I think this kind of really gets at the logic of this transaction. If you are Sammy D's Pizza in San Jose, California, your physical restaurant space is not full every night. You have excess capacity. You want as many orders coming in. Your incentives are to be on DoorDash and Caviar and Uber Eats and Grubhub. But that's not the case for every restaurant. And Caviar, you guys really made your name by going after restaurants that were full and getting them as their single platform, like Suvla here in San Francisco and the like. What does all of that mean for the demand side, for the other side of the market? Like, what did you guys find? Because I've had other people say to me, uh, especially from from Uber Eats, that like they found that increased selection to the consumer was the number one driver of growth for for diners. But obviously, at Caviar, you were taking a curated approach. So, like, how? What are these market dynamics? Increased selection matters a lot. Um, but I think you can sort of confound two things, right? Like it's not adding the 52nd Thai restaurant <laughs> that no one has heard of in a city is not what drives demand, right? Driving demand is the the place that everybody wants to eat on a regular basis or that it's like there's the sort of convenience gap I've called it before is is really wide between getting delivery and going there in person. So maybe there's only one location and there's always a long line or it's really hard to get reservations. If you can all of a sudden get that delivered in 35 minutes, yeah. that's game changing. This is uh, Oren Thomas on Caviar in San Francisco. There's one location in Soma. is really good. I'm not going to go pick that up from Noe Valley though, but I'll get it delivered. Right. And so I think supply is not supply, right? Like selection isn't just about number of restaurants you have um, and sort of checking off the list that that like, yes, we have every cuisine type. Having a good portfolio of different cuisines at different price points is super important. But what is also important is having like the restaurants that matter. Mm-hmm. I know I don't think this is how the process went down. I don't think they hired bankers. But if I'm the investment banker hired to make the case to DoorDash of why they should be buying caviar, is it to go get those super high quality restaurants that we don't have access to because this thing that's way smaller than us has some exclusive contracts? Is that the main reason for the purchase? I think that's definitely a big reason for the purchase. I think there's a lot of other things, be it team technology. Um, but I think it's very compelling that DoorDash and Caviar have sort of complementary portfolios of restaurants, right? So similarly, Caviar was only in 10 metro areas. So getting large national chains was not really going to happen. And DoorDash had made that an extreme focus. So now there's one company that has a lot of the best restaurants in these major metro areas, as well as all of the important national chains. I think that's pretty compelling from a selection standpoint yeah. to to have both ends of the spectrum under one roof. And I like I really can't think there's there can't be that many restaurants that the combination of DoorDash and Caviar um, don't have. To rewind, when all of these platforms were getting started, it was offer this service to diners 
and get them access to lots of different restaurants. People didn't think as much about segmentation, but there was this natural segmentation and probably very conscious on your guys' part at Caviar that happened over time of like, you you were targeting at Caviar like a, a very specific kind of diner that was probably different than the kind of diner that DoorDash was targeting, right? I think there's probably some truth to that. I think there's also a lot of people that frankly ordered DoorDash when they wanted restaurants that were on mm. DoorDash and and ordered caviar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they wanted restaurants that were on caviar, I think we all players in the space tried to create that loyalty and continue mm. to whether with Oh, this ex- is great. This is exactly where I was going to go. Of like how the loyalty, how important is this? Yeah, like, yeah, whether with exclusive content or with subscription products, right? I think uh Postmates, Uber and DoorDash all either have pretty robust subscription products or at least have tested, continue to test subscription products. This is like pay $15 a month for free delivery when you order, that kind of stuff. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, and I think the the Uber one might include Uber Eats, Uber... Oh, that's right. I think um, it does. Jump Bikes. Yeah. The Power Bundle. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Like all of the different food delivery apps do not have unique access to customers because lots of customers multi-home on a bunch of different apps. They don't really have unique access to drivers because the drivers also multi-home across a bunch of different apps, but they do have unique access to supply. And so that makes the case for sort of like, like you and I just had that conversation of, uh, are they buying them for the unique restaurants? They're not probably buying them for access to customers who have installed the app or drivers who are on the delivery network nearly as much because all those people are multi-homing anyway. I think that's fair with the caveat that you said not as much, right? It still costs money to acquire these drivers. It costs money to acquire these customers, right? Like there is still value to those sides of the network, but it's different than someone who has an exclusive contract with one of these places right none of the diners none of the couriers have exclusive contracts with any of the delivery platforms but some restaurants do so i think that is a distinction i'm just thinking about my own experience using these platforms of course i multi-homed like everyone but i had a preference i had the one that i opened first and that was caviar uh thank you and uh when caviar didn't have the right combination of either selection or convenience in terms of delivery times that I wanted, then I would, you know, go to one of the you know, lesser platforms. But uh, how much did you guys think about that? Like, like if you knew people were going to multi-home, is there a concept of like primary home? Like, yeah, I think definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head that it is like we needed to have the best mix of price selection service. Um, I think you called it convenience. I think convenience service, whatever you want to call it, but we needed for people to see more value in our app. And if that's the case, then that'll be the one they go to first. And um, that's true about basically any any platform that is sort of a content type platform. And I very much see food delivery as a content mm. game, just a content game where the delivery of the content is non-trivial. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it's not a, um, you're not shipping bits, you're shipping atoms. The content is atoms. <laughs> it's yeah. consumable content. Literally. Many more <laughs> things can go wrong in a food delivery yeah. order, for example, than pushing a Netflix show to yeah. your device. Yeah. 
I have sort of always viewed it as a content game in in many ways, and it's a content game where you just have to not screw up the delivery yeah, of that yeah. content. All right, so Nick, I want to ask about competition. So what does a business decide to do to compete when your competitors have a billion dollars to spend? I mean, your strategy must change from like, and obviously a different strategy to begin with, as we've talked about, but you're like, okay, we're competing either for a different prize or on a different field now. Like what, what changes? Yeah, I think you just have to ask your yourself sort of the question of, are we doing anything that's unique and different? Because if we're just trying to, for example, buy diners with uh, Google ads, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to lose if you have less money, right? Like you can't do that if you're at a, uh, if your competitor has billions of dollars mm-hmm. to spend. What's really scary in some of the dynamics in, in this market and other markets with all the private capital financing out there is even if you have better unit economics, you'll lose if, if you are just like so under-resourced relative to your competitors. It's interesting where like a lot of business textbooks will say right like you can't be the lowest price provider unless you have the lowest cost structure and that's true in a world of scarce capital (laughs) it is not true if you can go raise a ton of money and you can sort of say look we're just gonna price way differently than our our cost structure knowing that if we can get to scale yeah our cost structure will change greater access to capital than our competitors that's definitely a dynamic i think we've seen with with a lot of these spaces that a ton of capital flows into, whether it's transportation or, or food delivery or other ones. Cool. The last thing I, I, I want to ask, uh, and this is really a question for Nick, like one thing that we tend to do on this show when we grade, uh, which of course we're not doing here because it kind of just happened, but is really wild speculation. Like, what do you think this market looks like? Not at its final stakes. It'll never have a final state, but five years from now. That's a good question. I think there's likely to be some more consolidation just from the fact that there are network effects. Um, it is easier to get better restaurants if you've aggregated more demand and to get more demand if you have better restaurants. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit more consolidation. There's a question of like how what these apps can do to, as as we were talking about earlier, either be the sole home for diners or to at least lock up more people as the the primary home. So I think we'll probably see more creative testing and things in terms of subscriptions and offerings that can maybe increase frequency, increase stickiness amongst diners, um, those sorts of things. One last question uh, before we wrap up. Zooming out even Further, I mean, given your perspective across Sammy G's and Caviar and, and all your time in this space, for entrepreneurs out there, what's your view on the food space in general? Are there more, is there more innovation to come outside of these food delivery platforms? Certainly there's, you know, virtual kitchens being started uh, all around the world uh, and here in San Francisco. What, what else can happen in the broader space? Restaurants are being more and more open to using tablets, technology, apps. Um, And I think 
frankly, food delivery and food ordering more broadly has has been a big part of breaking down that door because it was such a no-brainer for a lot of these restaurants. And it was something that was just a shift in consumer behavior that very few restaurants were in a, a place where they could ignore it, right? They sort of had to participate in this change in in diner preferences. And so I think it's got people used to working with tech companies. I think it's created sort of a roadmap of sort of how to sell into restaurants and that sort of thing. So I do think uh, we'll see hopefully uh, more, more tech, more startups that can serve restaurants. I know being on the restaurateur side at Sammy G's, uh, the one space I would love to see improved is just sort of the restaurant supply chain and inventory management. And there's a ton of apps sort of taking cracks at this space, but it is still very old school, very fragmented, a lot of sort of lack of price transparency, changing prices, boots on the ground type Salesforce stuff to to source your ingredients and just as a restaurant tour, that's one where I'm, yeah. I'm rooting for all the I mean, startups if you're getting, in the space. As a restaurant, if, if you're getting your demand from a tablet, why can't you get your supply from a tablet too? <laughs> the ultimate place I think every restaurant tour would love to see that go is is basically I don't have to order my ingredients, right? It's like the the amount of ingredients I need just shows up when I need them because someone has access to all my data and a good can do predictive analytics can, on what I need and when and yeah they know that I need a can of tomato sauce today or four cans of tomato sauce and they just bring it and I get charged and it's not something that I have to actively yeah. um, be placing Manage. orders which like many restaurants still do either on really bad web interfaces over email calling in item numbers um and it's just a, a terrible, terrible process. A challenge in that marketplace where on the supply side you have ingredient suppliers and on the demand side you have restaurants, there's the amount of behavior change that you have to force on both sides of, of that transaction. Like the, the restaurants aren't super used to placing those orders in a high-tech way and the suppliers definitely aren't used to, you know, fulfilling those orders in a, in a high-tech way. So it's... You know, unlike a uh, place where people have a really uh, they they sort of experience that they want in their head of what the dream scenario is to order. It's not like restaurateurs sort of have an expectation of what that even looks like. You have to do education on both sides of that market. Yeah, I think that's right. And there are very well funded, large entrenched competitors that have an interest in the space not changing. The uh, Cisco's and like of the world, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We B two B marketplaces, tricky. Come well if uh, if you're an entrepreneur working on this, come uh, come talk to Nick. Come talk to us at Wave. Come talk to Ben at PSL. Big big opportunities. Um, should we bring it home? Well, Nick, anything else you want to say about the Athletic? Check out the Athletic. We currently have forty podcasts, but that number is growing rapidly. So please please check out uh, theathletic.com slash podcasts. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. We look forward to uh, the athletic episode at some point coming soon. Exciting company. I mean, I think there's it's something like half a million paid subscribers to to sports content now. Like that that is a, that is not something that I would have. People don't pay for content. Is like the famous meme from five years ago, and here we are. Um, it's me. Yeah, it's been an amazing time to join. Since I joined seven days ago, 
<laughs> we announced that we hit 500,000 paid subscribers uh, and we launched in the UK with coverage of Premier League and 60 of the best uh, football or soccer, whatever you will call it, writers in the world um, working for the Athletic UK. So it's been a pretty crazy uh, week and a half. Joining us, um, you know the drill. If you want to hang out with us in the Slack, it is uh, on acquired.fm and you can go uh, join the Slack there. If you want uh, more of us, we are about to record an LP show. And in fact, I think David and I are about to talk about what the topic of the LP show is going to be. So um, if, uh, like I am, you should uh, uh, click those or go to glow.fm slash acquired to become a limited partner. Thanks a lot. And one more reminder, if you want to help us be on stage at South by Southwest and do a live show there, first of all, we would love to see you if uh, um, if we do end up doing a live show and, and love to uh, meet up if you're there. But please help us out. Vote for it to become a panel on the agenda, acquired.fm slash SXSW, or click the link in the show notes. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.